Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you'll find details of our online events, including on May 17th, Francis Fukuyama on his new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Coming up on the show today, Vladislav Zubok, author of the new book, Collapse, The Fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, Vladislav, welcome to Bookstack. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Congratulations on the book. Uh, I mean, it's a, a complex story, but at the end of the day, you say it's one essentially about a perfect storm and a hapless captain. Oh, that's right. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev remains in the center of my book. Um, but uh, unlike with some other uh, books and biographies, uh, his, the focus is not on his achievements, although I do recognize them, but on his monumental failure in his pursuit to reform the Soviet Union. And I argue that Gorbachev's reforms and choices were the primary driver, not the only one, but the primary one behind the quick Soviet demise, in particular the ill-designed economic reforms and rapid political liberalization. Yeah, it is. It's one of the interesting things that you start the book uh, with a, a nice anecdote about August 1991. You're, you're on an Aeroflot flight and the news comes through that there's been a, a coup against Gorbachev. And uh, as you point out, the Russians on the plane mostly were absolutely delighted. And, and it seemed to me that uh, that gets to the heart of something about Gorbachev, that whilst he's so admired, revered even in the West, uh, in Russia, exactly as you've said there, he's mostly seen as a failure and a disappointment. That's that's right, you know, because he started uh, in, in the context of immense uh, optimism, particularly after all three previous leaders, uh, Brezhnev, Chernenko and Andropov died in quick succession. And there was a, a source of uh, macabre jokes and uh, great pessimism. All of a sudden, a young uh, leader who seemed to know what he was doing and spoke without a prompt uh, comes to power. And that was an immense uh, period of hopes. And then this period of hopes uh, came, you know, seemed to be validated by rapid succession of changes in the country, you know, freedom of speech, glasnost, you know, liberalization and reforms. And then all of a sudden, things began to unravel. And in, in more and more people's imagination, uh, Gorbachev's name came to be associated with chaos disorder uh, and a clear decline of living standards rather than any um, any hope any hope for a better future it really it really is actually striking shocking actually to to me how badly uh, Gorbachev comes out of your book that uh, he emerges as a character he's detached he's timid he's feckless uh, he seems to be lacking in political instinct there's there's no pragmatic organizational ability i mean he's he seems pretty hopeless actually certainly domestically anyway such a contrast to the foreign policy figure we know well, I'm struck by this contrast myself. And actually, when I read the Western estimates of Gorbachev, very, uh, you know, privately held estimates of Gorbachev, uh, for instance, the Americans uh, recognize that, yes, Gorbachev's, uh, you know, changed the world, changed Europe, uh, pro pro provided the West for immense new opportunities. But at the same time, they kept, you know, wondering, 
on his style of governance he is you know he used pretty much the same words that you you've just used in uh, uh and uh so but they didn't make it public because they wanted to boost gorbachev uh you know all, everything that happened under gorbachev definitely was in favor of, of western security interests and other things and you know i when i wrote about it first of all you know I, i'm i'm one of those who who were immensely grateful to gorbachev for opening up the country giving new opportunities travel to the west you know freedom of speech and conscience all those uh, wonderful things so my approach to the book is not from on the vantage point of like, okay, I regret uh, that the Soviet Union fell apart. I regret that Gorbachev became a leader. Not at all. All I'm saying, you know, and this is why I dedicated the book to all reformers, we need to take a look not from the, you know, at, at what happened, not in this kind of binary way, okay, are you for democracy or against? Are you nostalgic for the Soviet Union or not? But rather, you know, finding out what went wrong and why it went wrong. And my first admission was to be, you know, more or less humble. I kept reminding myself, hey, you are just a historian. You cannot be so uh, harsh on, on the Soviet leader because all of us uh, knew very little what ailed the Soviet Union and its economy. And, you know, we knew things were wrong. And Gorbachev was one of those who said, we cannot live anymore like this. But there, there was a, a, a deficit of experience of reforming such a country. Well, there was none, I would say. And everything was by trial and error, I should say. So, But even with this admission, I was astounded when I wrote the book how little... Uh, checks on what was going on Gorbachev did. He he seemed to be going forward more or less uh, uh, without uh, stopping and taking a stock of what was happening and maybe uh, saying to himself, okay, we need to, to, to rehaul the whole thing, to rethink the whole thing. So, you know, it, more and more I had this image of a Titanic with a captain, you know, uh, moving into uncharted waters, okay. You know, uh, iceberg was moving in, in front of him. And instead of just turning away, uh, the captain suddenly turned in the wrong direction and the whole ship was kind of sla slashed along what, what actually was the Titanic uh, fate by this giant iceberg. And instead of iceberg, I, I use the term perfect storm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you used the word experience there. The 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 one image of the Titanic, the other image that you used that I was very struck by uh, in the conclusion is of the sorcerer's apprentice. That uh, this man who unleashed forces um, and was simply unable to control them. Well, you know what? It, it's not my invention. Many people use this term before when they criticized Gorbachev. And uh, in one conversation, I heard it from one very smart uh, Estonian uh, Canadian scholar who asked me, oh, okay, you're writing a book about uh, the, so the end of the Soviet Union. So is Gorbachev an, a, a, a sorcerer's apprentice? So I re <laughs> it registered in my mind and I began to think about it and use this uh, metaphor. And indeed it was a little bit like this. Uh, and towards the end, Gorbachev was paralyzed by indecision, I think. You know, if you compare Gorbachev uh, he, uh, up to 1989, he's, he's hugely decisive. He uh, goes ahead with, well, this 
stupendously complex set of reforms, both economic and political. And then uh, he continues to be bold and decisive in foreign policy, but in domestic policy, he got stalled. So in particularly during 1990, the very underappreciated year in, in, in Western historiography, because the attention in the West by that time, of course, was uh, uh, you know pivoted, uh, pivoted to the effect of Eastern Europe, to the fall of the wall, to the new changes, but not to the Soviet Union. That was a year when Gorbachev still was capable of making drastic decisions on Soviet economy and other things, and he didn't. Yeah, I mean, you. it seems to me that that is almost the moment that the entire book, the entire project turns, that uh, you outline how there was actually a plan in place that had been developed that maybe could get a grip with these uh, specific financial and economic problems. And here's another example where Gorbachev just delays, he prevaricates, he just simply can't bring himself to act. And that ultimately is the moment that you say everything uh, on which everything turns. And and this was a, a strange combination, Richard, it really. It was a combination of, of, of daring, almost, uh, how to say, almost breathtaking uh, uh, audacity uh, and, and indecision. Uh, because, you know, what happened, uh, let me use the image of, of, of a temple, <laughs> another image, but Gorbachev had several pillars of his power when he came you know, to 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 work, you know, to, to assume his position. There was this, uh, of course, the party uh, that was uh, economic power. All lever levers were in, in Moscow, Moscow ministries, central authorities. There was financial power, the state bank. There was ideology, of course. Well, people, you know, no longer believed too much in it, but it was it gave the direction. And of course, the usual sinews of power: the army, the KGB. And, and and police. So uh, Gorbachev in 1987, 88, 89, uh, did so much to knock down all pillars of uh, power, you know, did, you know, remove the party from the center, you know, uh, let finances go out of hand and then become subject to, to uh, demagogic, new kind of populistic politics. E economy got decentralized fundamentally and wrongly. Um, you know, uh, ideology was essentially in shambles. Uh, uh, and then what he was left with was the, that triad of the KGB army and, and police. And of course, those uh, structures uh, betrayed him at the end. Uh, you know, he didn't like he didn't like to use power. The irony of history is that he was left with the you know the the instruments of power that he didn't want to use on as a point of principle. He was categorically against the use of force. What about the uh, external factors? I mean, one of your arguments seems to be that internal factors are really significant here. But but it was a, a conscious policy of the United States and the Reagan administration to try and turn the screw economically on the Soviet Union. Uh, what kind of impact do you think that has in the collapse? Oh, before, this is a very, very interesting topic, but before I uh, speak of it, let me just mention one more uh, internal factor that is really crucial to the story. It was essentially Gorbachev's perceived failure of leadership, uh, his uh, inability to stop rapid descent of the country into economic crisis and political chaos. And uh, on, 
you know, along with it, he, uh, you know, began to pass responsibility to others and he began to uh, decentralize both economic and political authorities, particularly to the, uh, to the institutions in, in the 15 republics. And that backfired in a pretty powerful way because during 1990, after the March 1990 elections, there was the rise of an alternative, a parallel elite. Russian elite represented by the uh, Russian Supreme Soviet and Russia was traditionally a, a kind of a cement, a, a mainstay for the Soviet empire. But almost within a few months, uh, it pivoted to being the most serious destabilizing factor of the empire. The leader of secession is within this empire. And of course, the irony was that the political leader of that Russian elite was Boris Yeltsin, who, uh, you know, fell, fell, totally fell out with, with Gorbachev. So most of, uh, most of observers, of course, point to this feud between Gorbachev and Yeltsin. Very few go deeper into the source of this Russian secessionism. I even write at some point about the phenomenon that can be compared to uh, Brexit, you know, when, you know, Russia, uh, it's Brexit when Russia all of a sudden says, we don't want to be in the union. We all want to be separate. We want to be Russia. Um, and then, you know, having said that, let me uh, speak a little bit about um, the outside factor, primarily Western uh, factor, you know, um, in a sense, uh, you 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 can talk about the two lines. Uh, first of all, everyone was taken by surprise by what was going on in, inside the Soviet Union, and this surprise was growing uh, as as reforms turned into chaos. Uh, but the reaction to this chaos uh, in 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 the West uh, was different. You know, I, I find two lines: one in Eastern in Western Europe, um, and one in the United States. So very briefly, in Western Europe, uh, one can find much more support for Gorbachev's effort to keep things under control, to reform the Soviet Union, and much less sympathy towards secessionism. Even one one may say towards the Baltic secessionism, which of course the jury, the West never recognized as part of the Soviet Union, but de facto, uh, you know, uh, Western European countries and leaders were kind of unhappy that the Baltic secession comes at this uh, inopportune moment, awkward moment to, you know, to sort of to uh, stand between Gorbachev and the West. And Western Europe is the center of Gorbamania. Mitterrand, Kohl, Andriotti in Italy, they are all in favor of helping Gorbachev. And when Yeltsin appears, you know, that is Mr. Secession, Mr. Russia Secession, he's treated very badly in Strasbourg and other places, and he's cold-shouldered, basically. And then the next line, in a quite different line, a distinct line, comes up towards Russian chaos, Soviet chaos, in the United States. Uh, for the Americans, uh, the Soviet Union is not like it is for Europeans. Not that Russia that had always been part of Europe's concert of great powers in one way or another. For Americans, the Soviet Union is a product of imperial and totalitarian past. So it's good that there's chaos. It's good that it's falling apart. It's natural, in fact, that this empire and prison of nations is falling apart. So you can find a lot of sympathy for the secession. Uh, for, for Baltic freedom fighters, for Yeltsin, 
on the Republican right, as well as the Democratic liberal left. Uh, plus, you have, of, of course, uh, powerful diasporas uh, from Eastern Europe, Ukrainian and Baltic, and they all uh, demand and basically cheer the dismantling of the evil empire and uh, favor national self-determination. So here, Boris Yeltsin and Russian democracy, in quotation marks, found a lot, a lot of supporters. And then you come to the to, to the big uh, to the big leader of it all, the, the Bush administration, the leader of the free world, the leader of the West, and in a sense, in a sense, you know, uh, uh, they uh, people of the administration um, were torn between different considerations: the national security, loyalty to Gorbachev, the fate of Soviet nuclear arsenal. Um, but in general, they viewed what was happening in the Soviet Union more like Americans than uh, Western Europeans. And you, you find what, what, what I described in my book are two fascinating discussions inside the Bush administration. One in May 1991, before the G7 meeting in London, whether to give or not to give a massive financial assistance to Gorbachev to help him keep uh, a new reformed voluntary union intact. And another in early September 1991, after the coup, the coup in Moscow de facto destroyed the Soviet state. And, you know, in the first debate, there was this question uh, to give uh, a Marshall Plan to Gorbachev or not to give. And the main speaker, uh, most frank, I would say, speaker was Nicholas Brady, Secretary of Treasury, close friend of, uh, of Bush. Uh, so he said, you know, are we talking about a great bar grand bargain? That was the term used at the time. Um, and then he said, what is involved is changing Soviet society so that it can't afford a defense system. If the Soviets go to a market system, which should be encouraged, then they cannot afford a large defense establishment. A real reform program would turn them, the Russians, into a third-rate power, which is what we want. And I found it tr totally remarkable and very much consistent with what was the U.S. Uh, strategy during the Cold War, basically to deny uh, the Russian state an ability, sufficient military power to wage aggressive war. And uh, for these reasons, administrations not only uh, not only lobbied uh, Western Europeans to um, not to help Gorbachev, but actively lobbied to deny this uh, financial assistance to to Gorbachev and. Uh, um, then Gorbachev goes to London, leaves empty-handed, comes back to Moscow, and it's quite probable, in fact, I do believe in it, that this fact that he came back empty-handed uh, helped to trigger the balance in his entourage, and his hardline ministers decided, okay, let's remove him temporarily from power and uh, move to, to, to an emergency. And this is what they did, of course, in August 1991. Yeah, I'm really interested in the uh, the 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 point that you made there about Nicholas Brady, the Treasury Secretary, and the the market system. Because one of the things that comes across really strongly in the book is that is how the Western role in the collapse has been misunderstood, really on both sides, but but also for this particular uh, in this particular example, because as you say, the forces of geopolitics and international markets are what the United States emphasise here, and that has 
has some fascinating uh, effects that that are we are seeing right now today. For example, uh, one of the things that it does is to force Russia and Ukraine to compete and not to integrate. Uh, and so in some ways, some of the things that we're seeing today go back to decisions made uh, in, uh, in, in the, the early 1990s. Well, absolutely, Richard. This is a time when everybody spoke about Washington consensus. It was the INF sort of uh, US Treasury kind of set of rules, how a country can uh, be, be a stable market economy and how an underdeveloped country or the country with uh, you know, let's say that moving from a different uh, angle towards the market, how it should get things done. And, and most importantly, how it should get investments and capital. And Americans keep repeating and to Gorbachev, particularly you know, um, um, uh, Baker, Secretary of State Baker, you know, it's all in the hands of private uh, investors. And, and, and the Soviets operated in their minds still in the 40s and the 50s when the states, states decided, you know, to give a Marshall Plan, not to give a Marshall Plan. So they, they wonder why the United States refrained from doing it this time and why they keep sending us to the end of the line of all other countries. And Gorbachev was indignant and said, you know, the Soviet Union is not Ghana. The Soviet Union is not Sierra Leone uh, to stand in line with other, you know, small and developed countries to get Western investments. And the, 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 the answer from the United States is basically silence. You know, you have to put your house in order and then wait for private investments to come. Yeah, and and the United States, the European Union, NATO, these are the uh, the countries and the organizations that are defining the structures of power and wealth and security. And as, as you point out uh, towards the end of the book, you know, a lot of this is a classic example uh, of that well-known of that well-known saying, woe to the losers. Well, well, you know, nobody expected actually that uh, uh, Russia would end up in such antagonistic uh, state vis-a-vis uh, -vis NATO. In fact, you know, the book reminds the reader how much pro-NATO uh, Boris Yeltsin and most of the Russians uh, in his entourage were. And in fact, when uh, Yeltsin uh, signed, uh, along with Kravchuk, a Ukrainian leader, and uh, Shushkevich, the Belarusian leader, the last two died uh, literally one after another just recently um you know when they three signed uh this um you know um minsk agreements or the school agreements to, the, to declare the soviet union null, null and void immediately yeltsin sent his strategist uh gennady borbolis to uh the brussels to ask manfred werner who was a general secretary of nato that russia should be first on the list to join nato and that question, uh, as Borbolis recalled, uh, we were in telephone conversation, um, perplexed Werner. He was not prepared to answer. And after a pause, I said, you know, uh, this is such a difficult question. I cannot imagine under what scenario Russia could be part of these structures. And for me, it was a, a conf first confrontation of that Russian willingness to join. At the same time, Russia's pride that, yes, we're joining you, but we're still a great power. We're not Sierra Leone with missiles and the Western inability to uh, imagine how Russia can fit into what emerges as a, a unipolar world, in a sense. So uh, the uh, 
Now it's tragic. Uh, at that time, it was not so clear. But you know, the byline of this episode is Russia that uh, destroyed the second pole of the uh, uh, the Cold War uh, international order, but is not fitting the unipolar order that emerged instead. Yeah, it's interesting that the uh, the book came out uh, shortly before the Russian uh, invasion of, of Ukraine. Um, the story of collapse, you say, should help us prepare for sudden shocks in the future. Uh, that's what you said then. We're, well, we, we certainly got one, didn't we? Yes. Yes. I, and I still I didn't I didn't expect it. I should I should say uh, it took me a while to uh, to mull over what happened. And then, of course, in retrospect, historians are great retrospectors. <laughs> they are poor fortune tellers sometimes, but they, they're great in, 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 in you know, rebuilding that lineage uh, to the past. And as I go back uh, after the fact, I, I realized, hey, this is, this is all started in 1991. This is all started from this misconception that Russia might be part of this new order that would be, let's say, of course, uh, guided by the United States, but it would, wouldn't be as uh, explicitly driven by American hegemony as, as it was actually. And gradually, as, as Boris Yeltsin uh, continued to interact with the United States, he, I mean, he offered everything. He offered that Russia would be part of NATO. He uh, was prepared to take American guidance uh, in reforms and so on and so forth. But what, he, what he, he was not prepared to take was this ability of Americans calling all the shots and keeping Russia in, in, in the shadow. And he kept, you know, he and his advisors kept telling um, Bill Clinton and then Stop Talbot and other Americans who dealt with them, you know, you know, you can feed us spinach, but at least, you know, you should do it more delicately. Uh, stop pretending that, you know, you know our interests and instead, you know, ask us what are our interests. And so this uh, uh, dialogue between, you know, the pro-democracy, pro-Western Russia during the 90s and the Clinton administration is a fascinating episode. I know you interviewed Mary Sorotti on this. It's, it's a great book to use as a sequel to my book. Yeah, and, and uh, as as you say, we had Mary on the show, and and I think that the the two books do work really well together because it, it seems to me that both that both of you are saying that the things that have happened historically that are being used in such simplistic ways are actually incredibly complex, and that in fact we have to embrace the complexity if we want to be able to draw uh, draw lessons from them. Oh, yes. Complexity uh, usually is a luxury of people who are not in, embroiled in a major crisis. So uh, what, <laughs> what, what I noticed immediately after the war started, immediately the whole debate about whether the enlargement of NATO was, uh, you know, justified, good, bad, and so on and so forth, was brushed aside. You know, poor George Kennan uh, is now judged as wrong uh, to say that uh, NATO enlargement would, when it would get to uh, the, the borders of Russia, would ignite conflict. Actually, it was good that NATO enlarged. And of course, we live in the era when, you know, tomorrow Finland and maybe day after tomorrow Sweden will become a mem member of NATO. So for historians, it's immensely difficult to take distance from all this. And uh, just as I tried, I did my best to take distance from the Soviet collapse. 
perhaps, you know, not to be like uh, viewed as a promoter or distractor of Gorbachev, but rather as a historian who analyzed the Soviet collapse. It's immensely difficult for me now to stay, uh, to stay more or less, you know, uh, as, as, as the ancient say, Sina Irian studio, you know, to be more or less balanced towards what, what awful things that are happening today. And, and 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 it is it is striking to me that that in many ways a lot of the book is talking about politics, geopolitics, economics, and so on. But but one of the things that you say at the end is how the ghost of the disappeared Soviet Union still haunts the imagination, and that strikes me as something really significant. And it's not just in Russia; it's also in the West too. Well, beginning with Russia, we saw recently during the the uh, victory. Uh, uh, preparations and celebrations in Moscow, how much of Soviet symbolics of Soviet signs and Soviet insignias were used. At the same time, you know, I, I think it's deeply wrong to attribute uh, what, 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 what Putin did and uh, what, you know, the support that he gets to Soviet nostalgia uh, prima facie. I think this is more, it is a new phenomenon. This is, uh, of course, some older people are nostalgic for the Soviet Union, but, you know, most of people, including Putin, had at, this, at some time in the early 90s, very clearly said, you know, Marx and Lenin failed. The Soviet Union had failed. You know, it's it it it. You know, uh, it it. You know, those who dream of uh, its restoration have no brains. Actually, it's the phrase of Putin himself. So, uh, what is happening today is more like resentment and revenge uh, after the collapse of the empire. That Russia, that had so much hope and was you know had that, if you like. Liberal imperialist mythology in 1991, 92, uh, that okay, Russia would destroy uh, the communist empire and the West would grant it a proper place uh, in, in the hierarchy of the international order. And when it didn't happen, when NATO was enlarged in such actually hasty manner, clearly preferring Eastern Europeans to, to Russia, um, that really uh, became a tipping point uh, for many who, uh, you know, even the liberals, who uh, thought that, you know, this is not a deal that we actually bargained for. Uh, one last thought, uh, Vladislav. Uh, we know that uh, Chinese elites uh, have studied the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, I also uh, think that Tocqueville's uh, Ancien Regime and the Revolution is is a is a very well read book uh, in China too. What what lessons do you think they have taken from what happened to the Soviet Union uh, in the early nineties? Well, I don't read Chinese, but my friends in China and who studied China. Uh, such as Arnie Westad, for instance, they say that about 30 institutes uh, in China, all close to the to the party, studied the Soviet collapse from different, you know, uh, uh, angles. And, uh, you know, one question that the, uh, the one one conclusion that the Chinese uh, drew from this, okay, you have to control the military. Well, that's simple. Uh, another that they drew, you have to really um, keep the party and make the party a beneficiary, the main beneficiary 
of uh, economic reforms. And this is what they did. They promoted all the red families of the nomenclatura. They allowed those nomenclatura pe uh, families to enrich themselves and thus, you know, re they replaced ideological stakes and political stakes expressed by, you know, in privileges, you know, all these limousines and uh, uh, you know, re redistribution of wealth by the state. They replaced it with a set of purely capitalist uh, goods. And this is what Gorbachev categorically refused to do. I mean, in, at the time, he was a, a neo-Leninist idealist who basically removed the, the party nomenclatura from economic reforms. And, you know, incidentally, that didn't make uh, those nomenclatura people uh, you know, totally, uh, uh, totally uh, deprived of the right to enrich themselves. Actually, they were, they remained in the game uh, and made lots of profits, but that alienated the entire nomenclature from Gorbachev. So the Chinese did better to preserve their system, uh, political system. Uh, they uh, made a great discovery that you can change uh, fundamentally economic system from essentially the planned economy to capitalism while keeping the old political system. This is something that completely eluded Gorbachev and his uh, cohort of idealistic uh, reform-minded communists. And it and it's the question that I that I should also have asked. What lessons do you think Vladimir Putin has learned from the from the collapse of, oh, of this, the oh, Soviet quite, regime? Quite a few, quite a few. Well, you know, one. Uh, let me mention two. Uh, one is, uh, well, three, I would say. Uh, first is obvious, like the Chinese, you built up uh, the army, you built up the security apparatus and, you know, keep, you know, keep them uh, very close. Uh, that's obvious. The second one, you actually keep macroeconomic stability. You never allow finances to go out of control. And we can see that his team of macroeconomic economists, such as Nabeul and Asulwanov, are one of the best in the world. And even the initial shock of Western sanctions uh, did not overthrow the ruble. Uh, for how long, I don't know, but that's clearly what Putin did and does. And he also is a big, big uh, fan of uh, accumulating reserves, currency reserves, gold, and so on and so forth, because he saw how, Gor how impotent Gorbachev became towards the end uh, when he ran out of money, when he had to become a beggar, extending his hand, going to all countries from the United States and West Germany to Israel, to asking for you know a couple of billions. So he uh, definitely uh, learned from that. And uh, finally, let me say, he learned a lesson about the Russian people. For Gorbachev, who was a true internationalist and idealist uh, in, in Leninist style, you may say, uh, you know, the Russian challenge was always a little bit of an enigma and he never knew how to manage nationalism. I think Putin learned from it. He always uh, was careful to stay the, the leader of Russian, uh, whatever you say, chauvinism, imperialism, nationalism, but the leader of what Russians associate uh, themselves with. So he is an embodiment of Russia. And even after he launched the war, we can see that instead of recalling from him, well, you know, in, 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 in fear and, uh, and uh, um, you know, disdain, and much of the Russians rally around him so far. They circle the wagons, they see him as a leader. And that's certainly what he learned from uh, the experience of uh, Gorbachev, but also Yeltsin.
So the book is Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union. It's written by my guest, Vladislav Zubok, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Vladislav, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damian Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thank you.